0: Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. Um, I'm just going to read God's word for us, but before I do, why don't I pray for us? Lord God, I just ask that you would quiet our hearts and our minds as we come to your precious word. Help us to have ears to hear what you have to say for us, to us through your scripture. In Jesus' name, Amen. So our first reading is from 2 Kings, chapter 23, verses 1 to 3. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, regulations and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Now our second reading is from 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in his great mercy He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now... For a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls.
1: Thanks very much, Nicole. Good morning again. Uh, Like I said before, we are coming to the end of our series called Seeking God, um, a series which we began at the beginning of January, where we decided this year, rather than, um, I don't know, think about what we want to do in 2023 and all those sorts of things, we thought about what, what, what does God really want from us? What is God seeking from us, his people, as we live in his world, um, certain of the world to come? And we've thought over the last few weeks, we've thought about uh, that God wants our whole hearts, we've thought about that God seeks the lost, God... Uh, seeks worshippers, God seeks ambassadors and today, as we come to the end of the series, uh, this is the big thing that I want to share today God is seeking it 's coming on the screen. God is seeking faithful, formed, potent disciples of jesus christ that 's what we 're going to think about today, um, and the four points of the sermon are going to be under there and Just to keep your attention going uh, and just because you know everyone loves a lucky door prize. Uh, Carl, our faithful AV, um, sound desk guy this morning, said that his neighbour brought in a couple of books that she doesn't really want anymore, but she didn't want to sort of like throw them out. And so she gave them to Carl and said, maybe your church could uh, like enjoy these. And uh, there's a few interesting books that I've received that we'll have to have a look at. Uh, But one that she gave was this, it's a 2023 Encounters Calendar uh, from Our Daily Bread, Um, I don't know if you're into calendars, maybe no one at all, because you've got a phone. But anyway, um, basically, if you can come up to me after the gathering today and tell me what the four key points of the message were, the calendar is all yours, yeah? Um, I'm expecting a rush at the door after the gathering today. Um, So there you go. Thanks to Carl's elderly neighbor for the lucky door prize, which we never really ever have. But anyway, there you go. and most, I don't know, I've been talking to heaps of pastors over the last few weeks and, and lots of churches on this particular Sunday of the year, the last Sunday of January, kind of launch the year with like a vision kind of Sunday. Um, a little bit of a what's coming up this year, what are we going to be doing, how do we hope the Lord's going to work in us. Um, and so as a bit of a combination, I guess, of like vision Sunday, but also wrapping up our Seeking God series I want to talk today about what it means for us to live and be disciples of Jesus in exile. Uh, Peter's first letter to the Christians living in the region of Asia, he calls those, he writes them and says, you are chosen exiles, chosen by God, by his grace and his mercy. And your exiles are in the original, it's actually closer to the word sojourner. Uh, We don't really use the word sojourner these days. But it really means, you know, someone who's packed up, has moved out of somewhere and is on their way to somewhere else. And what I want us to think about today is what does it actually mean to be chosen exiles? What does it mean to be disciples living in these days, certain of the days, the new creation? And I want to share some things actually that I carry deep in my heart. It's a bit of a sort of a sharing day for me. Things that no matter what I teach on or where I'm in the Bible, they resonate and are always present. They're things that I think enable you and me. You know, when you're feeling those times in your life, you're feeling like, what's the point of all this Christian life thing? What's the point of church and Jesus and church community stuff? Things that speak to your heart and keep you going and keep you in the game as we live for Jesus in this world. And there are four things. They're the four things on the screen. The first one is a pastor. The second one is a church. The third one is a university. And the fourth one is revival. These four things keep me going personally in ministry and I hope will help you and help us as a church as we set out on another year of ministry together. I hope these four things will help us to live well as as followers of Jesus in these times, in these times of exile, as we make our way from this world to the new creation to enjoy Jesus forever. Let's get into it. Uh, the first point is the pastor. If you're a note-taker, we're thinking about the pastor. And a pastor that really appeals to me and is, warms my heart is the man Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, let me tell you a bit about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In the year 1935, um, the German church is in a period of downward theological and ethical decline and spiral. Adolf Hitler, he's on the scene He's got this kind of satanic momentum behind him that if you were there and influenced by it, you would have wrestled with it deeply. Why not just go with the flow of what he's doing? There are some good values in there if you look deeply, look at the shame we've experienced post-World War I, a lot of pressure. And so Christians are one by one, denominations and theologians are capitulating and giving to Hitler and to the Third Reich the loyalty and the allegiance that alone belongs to Jesus Christ. Well, one day, several pastors gathered together with deep theological, societal, sociological concerns about what was happening. They penned a document called the Barman Declaration, which was all about faithfulness to Jesus. They came up with the idea of the confessing church, remaining faithful to Jesus, come what may. They decided to form a seminary, like a Bible school, to train young pastors in the way of faithfulness rather than in compromise. A piece of land was acquired, they built this seminary, and then the vision was cast and Dietrich Bonhoeffer is asked to lead the school. The school is called Finkenwald, named after the place where they met. In this school, it's where Dietrich Bonhoeffer dreamed up the content for this particular book, Life Together. Anyone read this, Life Together, by Dietrich Bonhoeffer? And also, yeah, and another book called The Cost of Discipleship. Um, we often, I've often read this book and sort of immediately tried to apply it to my life and my context without giving reference to where the times in which this particular book actually arose. It's a really weighty book that arose in really weighty times. So he has this little training center for pastors, and it's based on sort of contemplative, monastic, culturally engaged, defiant Jesus sort of focused gospelness and it's really intense it's a really intense facility it's so intense that one of his friends um, hears about it and visits Bonhoeffer because he's actually a little bit concerned that Bonhoeffer's kind of going a little bit too intense a bit off the rails he's like you know I, I know Hitler has some momentum I know the church is compromising but I'm hearing you're doing some crazy things a little bit too much So, his friend arrives to see what he's doing with the school. And the two of them used to row in boats together. So, Bonhoeffer takes him out onto the river um, near the school and they start rowing out on the water. He rowed his concerned friend to a place where, in the distance, was an airfield. Hitler's troops were training at this particular airfield, planes were coming and going. And it was, there was just that sense that Hitler is preparing. for war with with the world. So Bonhoeffer brings his friend and they stand on the bank and he says to him, pointing at what Hitler is doing, he is building an army of harshness for war, Bonhoeffer said. And he goes on, I think about the formation and what we are doing to respond to it. And pointing to his seminary, he says, this has to be stronger than this, pointing to Hitler's airfield. And they get back in the boat and they row back in silence. I've thought about that image a fair bit, right? Here is Bonhoeffer with his little seminary. There's Hitler with his weaponized, idealized society. And here is Bonhoeffer, this pastor on a hill, saying, our little school on the hill is going to produce disciples that are stronger than the Third Reich. Unapologetically, he then climbs back into the boat. And the fruit of all this will be the cost of discipleship and the life together, these amazing books. And I want us to say, I want to say today, we live in a time in history where I think the church is particularly failing in its primary role of, of forming disciples of Jesus Christ. We live in a time, I think, of sort of faulty formation. According to the Barna Group, a big research group in the U.S., in 2022, 1.2 million young people left the church in the US. What was the primary reason why these young people left the church? Was they didn't find the person of Jesus very compelling. And I want to say, how do you take the person of Jesus and make him boring in a moment like this? How? We still have a formation right here in our country where 70% of children who grow up in the church abandon their faith when they get to university. And I want to say we're in a moment where whatever we've been doing perhaps isn't working as well as it could do. It's not simply time to tweak or simply time to adjust or time to debate. It's time to re-engineer a few things. On one side, right, the response to what's going on, the response in this cultural moment could be um, syncretism people who have blended in with the world. And basically what we do is, let's just slot Jesus into our current sexual framework, socioeconomic, sociological frameworks. Um, let's just make Jesus a friend of our cultural moment. On the other hand, you've got people responding by saying, let's just get the heck out of here. Let's leave this, right? Let's get out of here. A bit like the Essenes of Jesus' day who thought the best thing to do was be holy and fast and pray and call for the end times. We don't have that luxury of either of those positions, I don't believe, here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. We've got to be in the middle, to live in the tension of being a chosen exile, Living in the tension of, of, of being a chosen sojourner. It's the tension of, of being holy, still being in touch with the power of God, living for the age to come, but still caring for the world and engaging with it deeply, living in a potent way in the middle of it all. We have to be people who have formation mechanisms strong enough unapologetically, where we can stand up and say, what's happening here at City Light Church North Adelaide in our gatherings, in our DGs, in our one-to-ones is stronger than the formation mechanisms of the world. Do you have that resolve in your spirit? Do you have the capacity to take the criticism that comes with that kind of intensity? Do you have the willingness, do I have the willingness to be misunderstood, even dismissed, because they don't fit neatly into the categories of the culture around us and have people leave. We're going to need it. Because if we're going to see the kind of fruit that we long for, we have to be willing to have the kind of formation that makes it possible. I carry that image of a pastor on a hill in my heart, and I pray you will too. The second thing is a church, a distinctive church. A pastor on a hill, second point, a distinctive church. I think for exiles living in this time of exile, we must have unity that is stronger than division. That was Bonhoeffer's vision. We need to have something stronger than that of the world. We need unity stronger than division. Now, when I say unity, right, the church seems to have tried every kind of symbolic unity that's ever existed in the world. Um, And it's born, I think, little fruit what I think we need is not just symbolic unity, like, you know, hey, let's just, we all follow Jesus, let's just get along, and then we sort of destroy one another on Twitter or Facebook or social media when we say something that sort of just fits outside the categories. Got to, that's not unity. Symbolic unity, which is, let's ignore our differences and let's just try and get along. That produces very little fruit. But substantive unity, deep relational, functional unity. That's the unity that moves history. It's true unity with actual people in an actual place, modelling together the new humanity that Christ has formed. So I want to put a vision in your heart of the potency of building true unity. Now I say this cautiously, I don't really know what we can do about all the big problems in the world, in order to make the world in which we live a bit more like the kingdom of God. But I do know this, in our local community, we can build a functional outpost of the kingdom of God. City Light Church North Adelaide can be a functional outpost of the kingdom of God. I'm concerned at times that a lot of our energy is going to things we can't really do much about other than have opinions on things, rather than do the hard, costly, sacrificial work of building an alternative community in our world. And I know of no other community that's done this more than Count Zinzendorf and the Moravians. Um, This is one of my favorite, apart from City Light Church North Adelaide, these Moravians are like my favorite community that's ever existed in the world. Um, Let me tell you a bit about them. Count Zinzendorf was a German noble. He had power, privilege, property and popularity and every other pea under the sun, right? But all he wanted to do was serve Jesus. He lived in a really socially stratified time in life where to go from being a count to being a pastor would be like, no, you just cannot do that. But he did it. That's all he wanted to do. He wanted to serve Jesus. And so his grandmother died, he inherited her estate, and he had the opportunity. In the midst of what he was doing, there was significant persecution, namely the Anabaptists, they were being persecuted, but somehow they huddled together on a piece of his land and they named a little village called Hernhood wasn't a very impressive little community on this land, just a quaint German village in the middle of nowhere, really hard to get to, really remote. But Zinzendorf and these people who are huddling together had this vision of building something really potent in the middle of all kinds of division, yet dumped on his land. Sorry, there was theological division, there was racial division, there was cultural division, and yet here was this group of people on this patch of land the raw material of a church community. In this community, you know there was there was all kinds of people. There were Calvinists. There were Arminians. There were High Church. There were Low Church. There was ethnic diversity, and Zinzendorf gets this vision, and he starts meeting with people. How can we unite together around the person of Jesus? He goes home by home in this village of three to four hundred people. Praying, let's have a spirit of unity, let's come together around the Lord's table, let's be one in Christ. He does this, he talks, he prays, he fasts, they come together for a special communion service on get this, August 13, 1727, not very long ago. Um they come together, and as they meet, the presence of God, we're told, comes down. And in this spirit of repentance and dependence, they come together. And as they did this, you can read about this, as they did this, they, they said you could not tell for a period of something like 11 to 12 hours whether they were on heaven in heaven or on earth. For about 12 hours, they couldn't tell whether they were in heaven or on earth. Now, don't get me wrong, that's a proper last night of camp, Holy Spirit encounter moment, yeah? I don't know if I'm in heaven or on earth. But here's the thing, it wasn't just some kind of, I don't know, wacky, charismatic experience. What happened is they got this vision of unity and they began to send people out on mission. They ended up being a tiny community, just a few hundred people, and yet they were, what Richard Lovelace says, the most effective missional community in all of recorded church history up until that point. They heard there were inhabited islands in the Caribbean, mainly full of slave people, where you could only access those islands if you sold yourself into slavery. Two of their young leaders basically said, well, if that's what it takes to get the gospel to these people, let's go. And there's a famous scene where these two men sell themselves into slavery and famously say, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his sufferings, and off they go. They start, these Moravians, right, they start a 24-hour prayer ministry that would go on for, guess what, 100 years night and day, praying for their missionary efforts. William Carey, when he is in Parliament, advocating against slavery... See, one of the great claims was that if we eradicate slavery, former slaves will go wild. They won't know how to sort of fit into community. Well, these two missionaries started a revival. Over 2,000 slaves turned to Christ, and literally this part of the world became like a, a portal, a functional community of the kingdom of God. And so when William Wilberforce is in Parliament thinking of an example of social proof where slavery can be overcome, he references in Parliament the Moravian missionaries and what happened, a reference point to taking down slavery across the British Empire. John Wesley, the great John Wesley, whose heart was strangely warmed, you remember, while crossing the sea en route to America, a storm whips up. He thought he was going to die, but the Moravians are on the ship with their 24-7 prayer vigil, confident that if they go down, they're safe in the hands of Jesus. It shook him. So when Wesley comes back to England, realises in his self-righteousness that he's not right with Christ, his heart is warmed at a Moravian meeting. George Whitfield who will go on to become, under God, one of the great revivalists, is at a Moravian all-night prayer meeting when the Spirit of God works in his life and he's changed and he turns to Christ. William Carey, again who'll become the father of modern missions, hears stories of people being converted through the ministry of the Moravians, comes to the Baptist Missionary Society, throws down the literature on the table and says... Why can't we reach the heathens like the Moravians? Now let's pause just for a second. The issues of their day that these people have touched, the Moravians have played a huge role in. Their tiny little church community has played a role in providing living proof to deconstruct slavery across the British Empire. It's raised up one of the great revivalists of the time who changed the spiritual climate in John Wesley, brought restoration in the church. And Whitfield, one of the greatest revivalists of all times, and then the father of modern mission is actually a child of the Moravians. Mission movements, eradicating slavery, discipleship, revival, birthed out of this tiny little unified church. How good. Here's my point. I think we're at a moment in history where we need to build more of these little, potent, unified, committed, repentant, tight little churches. Have we not learned that large-scale churches do not mean that the kingdom of God is at hand? I have nothing against large-scale churches. But what I'm saying is this, we need potency, not scale. We need to consciously commit to other brothers and sisters here deep local substantive unity first it's a pastor then there's a church willing to unite and out of that unity comes fruitfulness third thing is this a university and this particular university i'm going to share with you is placed in an area of total despair for exiles right hope has to be stronger than the despair around us now i don't know about you I listen to the radio a lot. I'm across what's going on in the news. I feel like we live in pretty dark days. We have a war in Europe. Just listening to the radio in recent days, there's heightened hostility again between Israelis and Palestinians in the West Bank. People are losing their lives. We're sort of coming off the tail end. We've experienced a global pandemic. I don't know about you, but petrol and electricity prices are like off the charts. Crazily expensive. Petrol's so expensive now for me. I, when I was growing up, petrol was almost free. Like it was like 40 cents a litre. Um, now it's like over $2. Now I like, I celebrate these moments. Uh, where I live in Prospect is an on the run on the corner, like a BP service station. It's usually really expensive, like, you know, $2 a litre. I'm like, I'm just going to run down to the United service station in Kilburn, just down Prospect Road. And I get there and it's like $1.57. I'm like, it's like lottery day. Like, jackpot. And so then, I'm also, you know, I'm a member of the Richmond Football Club, so I get an extra discount. Like, like, it's awesome. So I then calculate how much I've saved if I went to on-the-run Prospect versus United, and I message Adele and say, Adele, we saved $2.20. It's like half a long black. So I go down and order half a long black. No, I don't. Um, Dark days, right? There's decline in the church, there's failure of leadership at pretty much every level of society, climate change, culture war, cancel culture, ever-increasing, increasing increasing gap between the haves and the have-nots, and a horrible disparity between the life expectancy and outcomes of Australian Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people. We live in dark days. And there are plenty of young people wondering what sort of future they have. What's happening? But Jesus says in John 16, I've told you these things that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world, says Jesus. And God's vision is to have communities. God seeks communities all over the place who will overcome and model hope re- regardless of the hellscape around them. One of the things that strikes me about reading the prayers of the apostles in the book of Acts is that they never prayed, Sovereign Lord, make our circumstances easy. Time and time again they pray, Sovereign Lord, give us power to overcome wherever we find ourselves. My favourite story Speaking of a university and a community that sort of is dynamic and impacts the world around us, he's told by um, Philip Yancey in his book, Rumours of Another World. Um, if you've read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, it's sort of like an equivalent of that, but written by Yancey. It tells a story of a guy named Ernest Gordon, a British officer captured in World War II by the Japanese. He was put to work building the Burma-Siam railway through the jungle. The Japanese had an honour culture, um, meaning they'd rather die than surrender. And so for them, the concept that you'd have British soldiers and British officers kind of surrendering rather than taking their life, it was a category they didn't know what to do with. And so rather than sort of just leave them, they they dehumanised them um, because of what they thought was such cowardice. So the camps basically became not prisoner of war camps but concentration camps. And in this particular time, 80,000 British prisoners died building this railway to help the Japanese continue their invasions. Over the course of time in this particular camp, um, the culture of the camp significantly deteriorated. Um, Every man was just like, you know, living for themselves and clinging to life. Didn't matter if the person was Christian, non Christian, atheist, agnostic. Didn't matter. People were fighting, stealing food from each other. Dying men would be there, and people would be nicking their possessions as they lay dying. It was hell on earth. And one particular day, these men are out digging this railway, um, and one of the soldiers comes along and, and lines them up um, to check that all their tools were accounted for, um, so that no one would sort of hold on to one so they could escape. He realizes that a shovel is missing. He says, "Which one of you is trying to escape? Is in this lineup?" He says, "Where's the shovel? One's missing." They're all looking at each other. No one has the shovel. The Japanese soldier's now yelling, you know, if you don't tell me who did it, you're all going to die, points his rifle, and then as he's about to fire the gun, one man steps forward and says, I took the shovel. The soldier beat this person to death, and they carry his body back to camp. When they return to camp, they realize that that one guy that one guy, in spite of all that was happening around them, continued to model the Christian life before people. When they got to camp, they recounted the shovels, realized that all of them were there. The the soldier had miscounted them. So this one man who'd modeled the way of Jesus in the hellscape that they were in gave his life for them. This one heroic, sacrificial act in the midst of a spirit of selfishness began to shape a completely different culture in these hellish conditions. Gordon said, and I quote, Death was still with us, no doubt, but we were slowly being freed from its destructive grip. We were seeing for ourselves the sharp contrast between the forces that made for life and death selfishness, anger, jealousy and greed, self-indulgence and pride were anti-life. Though love, heroism, self-sacrifice, sympathy, mercy, integrity and creative faith on the other were the essence of life, turning mere existence into living in its truest sense. He goes on, these were the gifts of God to men. True, there was hatred, but there was also love. There was death, but there was also life. God had not left us, he was with us, calling us to the life of divine fellowship. So here in the midst of horrific conditions one man reminds them of the way of Jesus in the midst of a selfish culture and as that began to take root another kind of community was born. What ended up happening as Ernest Gordon records this they realized that each one of the men in the camp kind of carried a remarkable gift. God in his providence had sort of dropped into the jungle this kind of university faculty in the middle of a prisoner of war camp. They began to explore how that could bring a different kingdom in the midst of what was really like hell. Started gathering around Ernest Gordon. Apparently, Ernest Gordon was schooled in philosophy. It's when this sort of jungle university is teaching philosophy and ethics. Um, There was another person who was great at economics, they were teaching economic theory. There was a maths teacher, he's teaching maths. They went on to teach nine different languages in the camp. So in the midst of this hell, they create this jungle university, a place of hope in the middle of despair. There were talented artists, right? So with materials from the jungle, they make paint and then would paint and have art exhibitions. There were talented musicians who would lead sort of concerts They built a church where people could gather to receive communion. They had gifted musicians as well who there would lead singing. In the midst of this jungle, there's a portal to another way of life. Eventually, they were released, and in an act of love, they forgive the soldiers who brutalized them. And Yancey says this, Perhaps something like this is what Jesus had in mind when he turned again and again to his favourite topic, the kingdom of God. In the soil of this violent, disordered world, an alternative community may take root. It lives in hope of a day of liberation, but in the meantime it aligns itself with another world, not just spreading rumours, but planting settlements in advance of the coming rain. I love that. What about us? Planting a settlement in advance of the coming rain. What gifts do we have here at City Light Church in North out of us? That God might continue to grow and produce a school of formation of discipleship and life and entrepreneurship and reconciliation, that in the midst of the mess all around us, we'd be a light of the kingdom. It's possible, because even in the midst of despair, hope can burn. A pastor, a church, a university here's the last one: a revival, a revival. Um, my favorite revival in the Bible is found in the Old Testament, and it's all centered around King Josiah, um, Phil, one of our elders brought this to my attention some time ago when he talked about King Josiah as well. Josiah is a miracle, right? Josiah is a move of God. He's living in a time where for almost 100 years, 90 years, there's been no healthy model of what it looks like to follow Yahweh in covenant faithfulness. It's been almost 400 years when he comes to power since God's people have in any way honoured the story of salvation and practice all the rhythms and helpful things of redemption. Josiah, he comes to power when he's eight years old. Imagine that, eight years old. He comes, becomes king. When he's 20, he launches this widespread effort to eradicate all the pagan high places and graven images in Judah and Jerusalem. When he's 26, he launches what I've called Project Temple Cleanse, um, where during that project, he goes in and rediscovers the scriptures and reintroduces temple worship and all the covenant rhythms and practices. What takes place is extraordinary. He starts a revival that Spends time in God's redemptive calendar. And that's why I'm kind of so hopeful for what's happening with Generation Z. They're rising up with their eyes on something different. There's a kind of hunger that they have in Generation Z. They're looking around and saying, We don't want the idolatry that people have allowed in former generations to be in the land and impact us again. See kids going up and tearing down the high places, getting in and getting underneath systems and structures that cause people to stumble and fall into temptation and idolatry. See, Josiah goes back and he rediscovers the temple, and in the temple, he discovers the Word of God, which has been missing. It's extraordinary. And he finds the Word of God and he responds not by saying, Oh, God is kind, you know, He'll be gracious to us, don't worry. He's grieved and he falls on his face. And just a side note, he calls for a female prophet to help him interpret the word of God in his cultural moment. Brings her in and she realises there's trouble, so he turns to the Lord with all of his heart. Josiah brings the Passover back and they celebrate in a way that hasn't been celebrated for 400 years. What he basically does is he gets back to the root of Covenant loyalty and allegiance to God. The scripture says this about Josiah in 2 Kings 23. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord like he did, with all his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength, in accordance to the law of Moses. He's a young man who had a vision for God to be glorified in his time and place in history. Now look, we're in a moment, and if I can speak from my heart as we close, um, I don't know if this generation, like I'm, I'm 43, right? I, don't, I know I don't look it. I'm, I'm 43. I don't know if millennials and others like me will get a crack at it. I don't know. It's seeing revival. I think the decline may be very significant in the West. Again, according to Barner, it's hard to see the decline turning backwards and upwards anytime soon, but we may have a chance to create a window where we can raise up the next generation to thrive in exile. We may not see the revival we long to. I may not see the revival that I long for. We may not see the cultural renewal and change we want, but maybe we'll be able, to be able to build a foundation where our kids can live for God in a faithful and fruitful way. God says to Josiah, the judgment is great, but it's not going to happen in your lifetime because of the way you've turned to me. Now, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this question. Um, you know the characters in Daniel, Daniel, um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, you know those guys? Have you ever wondered like, where these teenagers kind of got their kind of, I don't know, ability to be faithful from? You know, these teenagers, right, they roll into the Babylonian Empire. Who gave Daniel the amazing skills to be like, oh, how's it going, king? And the king goes, yeah, good, thanks. Hey, Dan, we've got you on this kind of like fast track, this elite cultural track. And he goes, yeah, thanks for that. But hey, look, any chance we can talk about the food? Um, I'd like to try a little vegetarian thing for a while. You know, tell me, where's a teenager get the sort of people skills in the courts of power like that? How do you raise up teenagers, right, where everyone else is bowing down, where they say, hey, look, we appreciate the music, but we're just not going to bow down to your gods? And then they say, well, we're going to throw you into the furnace if you don't bow down to our gods. And they say, you know what, you can throw us in. God might save us, God might not, but we're going to stay loyal to him. How do you form teenage hearts like that? The most extraordinary thing is that in the book of Daniel And I carry this in my heart. It says this at the hour of evening sacrifice when Daniel was praying. Daniel, at this point, has been in exile for 70 years. The temple's gone, but he's still organizing his heart by Jerusalem time in the middle of exile. 70 years later, and his internal character is still formed by what he experienced as a child, and he's still faithful. Well, where did that come from? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are children of the revival under Josiah. He forged a window of repentance and holiness and faithfulness that raised up a generation who could thrive in exile. And I want to say this. You know, some people often say, sometimes my wife says, Simon, you've just got to calm down a little bit. I want to say we've got to calm up, right? Right? Don't come down. Because this is a moment to raise up young people who can thrive in the midst of secularism. Serious times require serious response. And God has entrusted us with serious moment in salvation history. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be polished. It can be small. It can be scrappy. It can be agile. But it must be potent with a vision of love and loyalty to God. It must have faithfulness to Jesus. Must have countercultural love, and I honestly believe we're the kind of people, the kind of church that will live like that. See, here's the thing, right? Bonhoeffer's little experiment, back in Germany, back on the hillside of that seminary, lasted about two years—not very long. If you want some encouragement, right? Um, quite a number of the pastors who were at his school actually went on to sign a oath of loyalty and an, an oath of loyalty to Hitler and the Third Reich. But here's the thing, it didn't matter. It wasn't a numbers game. It wasn't a chart that had to go up and to the right, or up and to the right for you guys. All he needed in that time of compromise was a model of another way. Hitler is dead. The Third Reich is gone. Carry shame. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer is considered a modern martyr in the church. His books that he wrote have gone on to disciple generations long after he went to glory. And even though it didn't look like much, the man on the banks at the edge of that river was right. What he did in that tiny school was stronger than Hitler and his cronies. Jesus, right? He gathers a few disciples and he puts them in a room, about 120. Men and women. And they're united. And they're hungry. And they're dependent. And they are desperate, and the fire falls on them. And it doesn't look like much, this small group of men and women, but within 300 years, the Roman Empire will be brought to its knees by the love of Jesus and the faithfulness of his followers. So my simple prayer for us as 2023 gets rolling, my simple prayer for us as we wrap up this series of Seeking God, is that in this moment, we'll be like those people. That we'll build something that is stronger than what the world offers. That we'll be like those potent Moravian communities, right? Not large, but fruitful, zealous, and unified. In the midst of the chaos of our culture, we'll be pl- build places of formation and life, little outposts of the kingdom. And we'll turn to the Lord like Josiah, and in so doing, raise up generations to come who'll thrive in exile. Amen? Let's pray together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you are faithful, Father, throughout generations. We praise you and thank you that over, the time, over history, we've seen how you have continued to build your people and care for your people. And we thank you, Father, for the way that you've raised up particular individuals at particular moments in history who, with your help and by your Spirit, have done remarkable things. Father, we pray that we, this year as a church, would continue to grow to be a functional outpost of the kingdom of God. That, Father, in the midst of the messiness of our world, in the midst of the messiness of our city and even our suburb, we would be a community of light and love and life. Father, we pray that we would be a church full of people who don't just think about ourselves, but think also about the generations to come. We pray that you would empower us by your Spirit to be faithful to keep trusting Jesus, to keep holding out the gospel. And Father, we pray and we long that you'd grow us, use us even though we are small, to bear much fruit. And Father, we pray that you would keep us unified and zealous for the glory of God, the good of our neighbours and our joy. And we ask and pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.